Welcome to the Miller Piano Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Skipper, and in this episode, we have a talk with special guest, Shanna Kirk. Shanna is a consultant and product specialist with the Yamaha Corporation of America. She is frequently featured on event programs for organizations throughout the U.S. and Canada. She writes music and music technology-based reviews and articles for blogs, websites, and print publications, including Piano Magazine and American Music Teacher, where she co-authors the Tech Connect column, And it was just announced yesterday, I believe, that she is now the Director of Digital Operations for the Francis Clark Center, among many, many other things. Uh, Shanna, it's an honor to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. It's great to be here. Did I get all that right? You did. I think so. (laughs) Seems like a a lot now that you read it out loud. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I missed a lot of it because... Honestly, reading from your bio, there's so much there. I know just looking at your education, it's incredible, honestly. Uh, you, I was seeing there you have a BA in piano performance and German. from Lip- Yeah, from Lipskin University, uh, Master of Music in Piano Pedagogy from the University of Denver, and quite a few others that I honestly just make a fool of myself trying to pronounce. Uh, <laughs> oh, the hell the German stuff is pretty tough. Yeah, I, I was trying and I was looking it up, trying to figure out exactly uh, how to pronounce those in German. I'm like, no, nope. uh, yeah, maybe you can t- help us with that. Where Where else have you studied? What else have you done? So I, I spent some time in Germany, actually, while I was a student in Lipscomb, and I studied at the Goethe Institute, which is a language school, and I went to the Musikhochschule, which is a music school in uh, Mannheim, wow. and uh, I spent a little time also at the University of Mannheim, and uh, so I have always enjoyed uh, dipping my toes in a lot of water, I guess, and I just am so fortunate to have a really multifaceted uh, career and uh, a lot of interests that just keep me engaged and busy and curious at every possible direction. <laughs> That's awesome. I think to sum it up, I read this on your LinkedIn profile, and it's really simple and, I, and to the point, and I loved it. It says, I'm a pianist and a geek, and I combine those two qualities as often as possible. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly, exactly it. I love it. I grew up playing piano. I uh, grew up playing music all my life, but I also consider myself a geek. I do a lot of those type of things, and I love playing with uh, all the possibilities in in technology with music, with MIDI, and just you know, working all these different things. So I love it. <laughs> but there's be- never been a more exciting time to just dive into both piano music and music technology and just 21st century tools. It's a really, really great, great space to be in these days. It really is. And I don't think a lot of people know that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, uh, this podcast. So p- just to let the world know what's out there. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Before we get into today's topic, uh, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit better, you know, your background, where you're from. So I understand, Shanna, that um, you mentioned, I know you're not, you don't live in Tennessee now, but I believe you are from Tennessee. That's right. I grew up uh, in West Tennessee, a little town uh, called Lexington that's about halfway in between Memphis and Nashville. I went to Lexington High. And uh, my parents still live on a bucolic farm that is right off of Natchez Trace State Park. And so uh, we get back there as often as we can. Uh, So I grew up as an absolute Tennessee farm girl who loved music, loved all the great harmonies that surrounded me and all that Tennessee music has to offer. 
And then I went to college right there at Lipscomb and uh, where that was my first introduction into, you know, really diving into classical music and really diving into music technology. And uh, I really did have a wonderful experience there. Wow. Wow. Well, where do you live now? I live right in central Denver. Okay. And uh, how, you know, just real quick, how did you end up there? How'd you end up in Denver moving away from Tennessee, being so focused on music? How'd you end up in Denver? I was actually looking for graduate programs after I left uh, Lipscomb. After I graduated from Lipscomb, uh, my now husband and I were both kind of searching the world, searching the country at least, for places that looked like fun and also had um, continuing education, graduate programs that would fit both of our needs. And uh, somehow Denver was just the place that we landed on. So... um, It wasn't really as, you know, there were a lot of factors that went into that. But basically, we were looking around for where could we have a great time and continue our education um, in the same city. And uh, Denver hit that sweet spot. And once we were here, we just couldn't couldn't think of leaving. It's it's beautiful out there. I've I've looked at it multiple times all out through Colorado in that area. It's beautiful. The weather, at least. uh in the summertime and you know, most of the year is beautiful. I know you get snow. Um, I asked you before we uh, started recording this, but you had any snow so far? There's actually already been a lot of snow in Colorado. Uh, If you're thinking about coming out for skiing, everything is already open and, uh, and just really in great shape up in the mountains. Denver has had more snow than we're used to by this time of year, but today it's actually sunny and gorgeous, which is uh, a little secret of Denver is that there's 300 days of sunshine and it's almost always sunny. Uh, you're making me jealous. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. nobody makes biscuits like the Loveless Cafe, so <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's thing we don't have. <laughs> In any case, uh, let's go ahead and get into the topic that we wanted to talk about today. We're getting into piano technology, specifically the disclavier and addressing common 21st century learning challenges. Uh, piano technology has changed so much over the years. You mentioned a little while ago uh, how we live in one of the most exciting times in music and in with piano technology. I think that, that the majority of people, when they think of pianos, they think of a beautiful instrument, uh, a lot of times the classical instrument, the upright or the grand piano, but not a whole, whole lot of people, not many people think about technology in the piano. The truth is it has changed a lot. How has piano technology changed over maybe the last 10, 20, 30 or more years? Well, 30 years is kind of a, a benchmark in uh, the evolution of technology at the piano, especially at, of the acoustic piano, uh, because that's when true reproducing pianos that were outfitted with MIDI technology started being produced. So Yamaha's first disc clavier was about... I think a little more than 30 years ago now. And it was just a reproducing acoustic piano. Uh, But at the center of that uh, was suddenly the ability to uh, measure every single motion, every single gesture that a pianist could make on a piano could be measured in just incredible resolution, even as long ago as 30 years. And in the interim, that has only gotten better uh, starting in the mid-90s, Disclavier introduced high-resolution recording. So instead of the 128 increments of MIDI measurement, that was then multiplied by nine. So 
in the approaching a thousand increments of measurement for every single keystroke, every single hammer hit, every single anything that happens inside the piano is being measured to unbelievable accuracy. So when you have that kind of accuracy, you can actually reproduce a performance to the standard of a classical artist. In prior iterations of uh, reproducing pianos, uh, say what you might associate with player pianos of uh, the early 20th century, um, there were actually some very sophisticated instruments even back then, but they couldn't come close to reproducing the humanness of a classical performer uh, with all of the subtleties that are required and studied right. uh, in classical music. Wow. How did you, I know that you grew up here in Tennessee, you studied at Lipscomb, but how did you get interested first in piano technology? So that's an interesting thing. So when I was a high school student, I was a pretty, um, I was a pretty enthusiastic student uh, and an enthusiastic musician too. Uh, but you're in kind of a, an isolated area in rural Tennessee where you don't know what you don't know. Uh, but I was just fascinated by all things music and I knew I wanted to be um, in, the, in the music world. And I had played in band and taken piano lessons. Um, and then I got to Lipscomb and there was this whole other layer of, of musicianship that I had no clue about. Wow. So my teacher was Jerry Reed, who is, you know, just a wonderful and award-winning and phenomenal teacher in the area. And I think that he um, saw a spark and also had a willingness to kind of be hard when it, when it was necessary. Right. And um, so he really gave me some guidance about classical music. And then um, and also just sort of helping me fit into that world because I had been a, a total, you know, country girl mm -hmm. and I didn't have a clue. Um, but also at the same time, this, this is like, you know, the ironies of growing up in the South, I think. I had a small scholarship from the Walton Foundation, from Walmart. Mm -hmm. And that scholarship went on top of my other scholarships and it was actually just cash. And they just gave me a check. Wow. So with that check... I marched myself to the music electronics store. I don't even remember the name of it now. It was a dusty little store in um, Northeast Nashville. And I bought a keyboard and a Motu interface, <laughs> those little orange and bright colored Motu interfaces, and Finale version 2.6.1, oh, the yeah. engraving software. And um, which came on, you know, three or four floppy disks, best I remember. Right. And a um, a Mac Classic computer, like the wow. little screen, you know, monochrome Mac Classic. So that was my that was my rig, and I, I carried it back and forth to Lipscomb with me in the back of my Ford Escort, and <laughs> and I. Um, discovered at the same time that our theory teacher, who was a brilliant, brilliant man named uh, Gerald Moore, um, Dr. Moore unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but um, he had been doing a side gig for many years as uh, an arranger in Nashville. So right. the idea of using a keyboard to write music into a computer was relatively new, and we had started that learning curve at the same time. And uh, so we shared each other's pain and uh, learning how to do this uh, 
being frustrated by how often our computers crashed and how often we couldn't <laughs> get our MIDI set up to work. Um, I have admitted many times, although probably never on the radio, that <laughs> that uh, I got away with with not doing a whole lot of my theory homework because I used to try to turn it in on finale and then my computer would crash and I would oh. go to Dr. Moore and I would say, oh, oh no. Dr. Moore, my computer crashed. And he was so, he was this giant, uh, like, you know, I don't know how, it seems like he was seven feet tall, but he probably wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> a lot bigger than me person who would just, but he was sort of like a big, you know, cuddly, you know, he was just this nice, nice person, very, very warm person. And he would say, oh, Shanna, I completely understand. You can just turn it in whenever. And, you know, I would never get around to turning it in. <laughs> <laughs> he let me slide on so much theory homework. Oh, <laughs> then, wow. But I, I'll, I'll have to also admit that I ended up taking some uh, remedial theory classes in graduate school <laughs> because I skipped out on so much. <laughs> hey, but during that time, you got all the practice in there. So you learned. Right. From- <laughs> so I definitely like had this deep understanding of how um, MIDI and computers fit together and, you know, why that is useful in the real world, because there was Dr. Moore just um, doing incredible work in Nashville and increasing his output, I think, exponentially because all of a sudden he didn't have to handwrite everything. There was this easy way. There wasn't even, there was barely email. It wasn't like you could attach a message to a, I mean, you couldn't attach a score to an email or send anything online, but at least you could get multiple copies output fast. Right. Right. That's, that's awesome. (laughs) You started (laughs) from the beginning there. You started really, really early, learned it well. So I think um, in our correspondence before this episode, you mentioned that the bulk of your work today uh, in in your job and everything you do seems to revolve around artists, educators, and recording studios who use the Yamaha Disc Levier, uh, especially when it, it can help address common 21st century learning challenges. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so... Uh, I have had a long time relationship with uh, Yamaha uh, as a consultant Mm -hmm. since actually the time I was a graduate student here in Denver. And in that role, I have uh, been in this sort of unique niche of having a big background in classical music and piano pedagogy, but also having this, you know, additional layer of knowledge in technology. So uh, Yamaha has hired me now for many years to help uh, educators, especially college music departments, um, but also private teachers and uh, artists and studios and whatever, to uh, figure out what they needed, how they could be helped by this technology. And since my personal passion is for great acoustic piano performance, uh, a lot of times that has um, carried over to Disclavier. So um, right. since the very early days of Disclavier, schools have adopted them for the purpose of helping students practice more efficiently. So it's one thing to practice for you know hours and hours like we do as pianists, but uh, a lot of times that turns into things like repetitive stress injuries or just plain old uh, brain fry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, exhaustion. So uh, something that was discovered, and actually one of the original reasons that the Disclavier was ever invented in Japan, was to help students take advantage of being able to listen to themselves better. 
So if you, as an advanced uh, pianist, can record a performance on the disc clavier and then step back a few feet and then experience your own performance as an audience member or mm -hmm. as a critique of your own performance, you develop listening skills and sort of self-assessment skills that you can't do when you're just in the middle of playing. So that's an incredible benefit to being able to have this very realistic performance of yourself uh, just anytime you need to do that. Right. When you listen back and you hear yourself, <clears throat> what you did, because a lot of times when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize, you know, you're messing up in a certain area. You get off time, I guess. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes there's that. Uh, but then I call it sort of the microscope of the disc levier is when you have that performance. Now, remember that the disc levier on the on the backbone of the disc levier is MIDI. Mm -hmm. And MIDI is data. MIDI is not a recorded performance. Right. So what can you do with data? You can manipulate it. Right. So because MIDI is data, you can take a disc of your performance and you can speed it up. You can slow it down. You can change the key. You can, you know, you can take little segments out and loop them over and over again. And um, so anything that you can do in a MIDI studio, you can also do at the disc clavier, but the benefit is you're doing it on a real acoustic piano with all of those, you know, brain rattling vibrations in the room, right. uh, all of the specialness of an acoustic piano. So uh, I have been giving workshops for teachers for many years now, demonstrating a lot of the ways that you can use disc clavier as a, just a microscopic teaching tool. One short example I'll give. Yeah, is, that'd be great. Uh, say I, I saw this in, I saw this years and years ago before I was working um, so closely with Yamaha in a teacher workshop with uh, Susan Ogilvie, who is also a you know, wonderful uh, technology um, promoter and uh, just composer and wonderful person. So anyway, I was in this early workshop with Susan Ogilvie and she had a student come and she was going to show recording and playback uh, as a teaching tool. And right. she asked the student to uh, play a scale. And the student, she was expecting that the student would miss a few things and that she would play it back and we would be able to, you know, make note of, oh, you didn't quite get that, you know, finger passage exactly right or something like that. But instead, the student was a total show off and he played really, really fast. And the audience kind of gasped at how great they thought it was, maybe, or maybe how great he thought it himself. <laughs> and uh, so right in the moment, Susan said, you know, I'm going to do something a little different here. I'm going to see what your performance sounds like if I play it at half the speed you oh, played it. Wow. And all oh. of a sudden, you hear all of these bumps and <laughs> uneven places and places where the two hands weren't exactly together. And suddenly you realize she's just taken a microscope to that performance and exposed everything about it that was insecure and uh, shaky. And also, sometimes you hear two side by side really fast performances, and you can't quite put your finger on what well, no pun intended there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, um, why one is so much uh, more professional sounding than the other, right? Sometimes it's those microscopic differences in were your hands exactly playing together? And was the scale exactly, exactly even and that happens across the board, not just in classical music, right?
What other ways have you seen and maybe other examples or something where teachers are working with their students or maybe schools are maximizing their efforts, uh, working with students with the disclavier? What other ways have you seen that? So uh, it's, it's a long list. Uh, but a couple of my uh, favorite examples are uh, just anywhere when a school or a teacher, especially, and we all know the burden that is on teachers, especially these days with budget cuts in schools and just incredible schedules that the teachers have to put themselves through. Uh, I have a colleague, Mario Ajero, at Stephen F. Austin State U- University in Texas. And he has all of his students record their piano proficiency exam. So this is the class that, you know, group piano or class piano, where uh, music students, not necessarily piano students, but any music students have to pass what's called a piano proficiency. And uh, so at a big school like Stephen F. Austin, that can be an enormous number of students uh, to go through and get um, and take these exams. So Mario has all of his students record their exams on Disclavier so that he can come in and and uh, grade the exams without having to actually schedule with the student. And it just puts so much more flexibility into not just his schedule, but theirs. I mean, students wow. are, yeah. you know, especially music students are so booked with performances and recitals and even just attending other things. So uh, so that is just a simple way that the Disclavier has lightened the load of music students and faculty. And um, then modern disclaviers, so by modern, I mean just in the last, you know, five or so years, there has been an added element of synchronized video. So most disclaviers in the last several years, you're able to connect either uh, a camera, so a video camera, or even just an iPad. There's an iPad app that goes with the disclavier called My Music Recorder. Uh And those two things will let you marry together video of your performance and the physical performance that is on the disclavier. So how does that help a modern uh, competitive piano student? Uh, Well, we mentioned, I think, earlier the uh, avoidance of performance injuries. And uh, there have even been studies about this, you know, NYU and Washington University, all kinds of things. So um, when a student can actually see the mechanics of their own performance on a video screen Mm -hmm. and then at the very same time, see how a certain gesture of their body translated to a certain sound at the piano. You know, all of a sudden you have all of this information to take in. You can take notes on it. You can you can work on parts of your physical performance that you might not be able to observe even from hearing yourself or from independently seeing a video of yourself. Right. So the two of those things put together just give you so much information to uh, assess your own playing and to be a healthier player. I know even probably just now while we're talking to each other, I tend to be a pretty animated talker. And I realize, you know, one of my shoulders is higher than the other. or I'm starting to <laughs> lean forward in a weird way because I get excited when I talk. And uh, you don't realize what little tensions you put into your body in the, the ways that you talk, in the way that you do your everyday things. When you're a pianist and you're at the piano for hours and hours a day, those little m- motions in your body, those little tensions can really, really multiply. So it's extremely important for pianists in today's ultra competitive environment to have every possible advantage to be able to reduce those tensions. Right. To be self-aware, understand what they're doing, what 
what they do, how it comes through in their music and everything they're doing. So that's incredible. Yeah, it's critically important. I can't count the number of pianists that I've known that have dropped out of performing life because they have had injuries or because they saw an injury coming and didn't know how to avoid it. Uh, But also I've seen wonderful success stories of pianists who were able to overcome injuries or avoid them in the first place uh, just because of technology like the disc levier. Right. Wow. Well, you say technology like the disc levier. Are these options, everything you're mentioning, are they more just focused on the disc levier or what other pianos from Yamaha have these same type of options? Or is the disc levier really the one, especially in performance things, where it's that's the standard go-to? I think the disc levier is certainly setting a standard in every possible way. Uh, but Yamaha, because it's such a big and interconnected company um, and such an innovative company, has carried over a lot of technologies and a lot of ideas across several different instruments. One of the most important ones, I think, is the ability simply to put on headphones. And every instrument Yamaha makes, including most acoustic pianos, are now available with what's called a silent feature. Mm. That means you don't have to have the playback uh, ability of the disc levier or some of the more sophisticated MIDI features that are in the disc levier uh, to appreciate why you might want headphones on your acoustic piano. Um, that solves so many problems for so many families. Uh, if you have more than one child in the house, if you have people who go to bed at different times, if you have close neighbors, if you have a, a student in your family who just is shy about having other people listen. To, I don't like other people listening to me practice. <laughs> I doubt if most people do. So that is just, you know, a problem solver just by itself. And because the core of the disc levier revolves around this very, very precise measurement Mm -hmm. on the one hand, and on the other hand, very, very high quality sampled sounds inside your headphones. Because remember, Yamaha is also an electronics company. So many, many very powerful sampled sounds come from the Yamaha CFX concert grand piano Mm -hmm. from the Yamaha C7, which is the standard in every recording studio everywhere. You can ask your Nashville friends. Right. (laughs) um, uh, Lots and lots and lots of choices. Yamaha is also um, the owner of Bosendorfer, and that sample is now in a lot of our uh, headphones instruments. Um, And then you get into the very exciting, more digital features of something like a Clavinova, where you basically have a multi-track studio at your fingertips. Um, You know, tons and tons of artists and educators, composers um, get tremendous use out of Clavinova. I mean, it's everything but the kitchen sink right inside the same. (laughs) So for someone who may be listening, uh, a listener out there, and they're trying to understand, you know, I grew up playing piano. And I think mom and dad, my my mom and dad would have been very happy if I could put headphones into my piano every once in a while, you know, and uh, I guess the, the question is, you know, for some people out there, how does that work? You take a piano, how can you plug in an acoustic piano and you plug in headphones, you know, just getting really basic here. How does that work where you can plug it in and suddenly the piano doesn't make any sounds anymore? Can you kind of explain that to our listeners? Oh, sure. It's actually not that complicated. The, the mechanism of it is not that complicated. 
in an, a Yamaha acoustic piano that has a silent feature or on a disclavier with a silent feature, right. there is simply a, a bar that uh, mechanic, you know, you hear a little motor go like, and it just prevents the hammers from striking the strings. Right. So then instead of hammer striking strings, uh, they're just stopped by this little soft bar and it doesn't make, it makes the same sound. I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, damage anything. Right. Uh, and because the disclavier is based on fiber optic technology. You're, the hammers are not hitting anything. They're not hitting sensors or anything like that. They're simply passing through beams of light. Right. And those beams of light can have unbelievably precise measurements. So whatever you're playing on the keys, even if it's fast repeated notes or if it's very slow movement of the key up and down, all of that is being measured and then reproduced in a really, really sophisticated modeled sample That's... of... Uh, of an acoustic grand piano. So one of the things that I think is great fun is you put on the headphones in your, you know, living room sized uh, ac acoustic piano that's an upright or a small grand maybe right. that fits into, you know, everybody's living room. And then when you put the headphones on, all of a sudden you're hearing this nine foot concert grand. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. I wish I would have had that growing up. I really do. <laughs> I think my family probably wishes they had that growing up. <laughs> So one of the things that uh, we've talked about here is is learning and be able to work with someone who's somewhere else. A lot of times today, people are moving all over the place. Uh, my family, we've moved four times probably in the last 10 years. Uh, it's just one of those things that happens a lot. People move all over the place. And what happens in today, how can we use the technology in today to be able to Let's say you have a piano teacher somewhere else, like in another city where you were and you moved away from them, but you don't want to change teachers. You don't know who to look for then. How could we use this technology for, for things like that? Or maybe you could give us an example. Yeah, well, obviously, distance learning is a really hot topic in education circles everywhere, and music education is no uh, different. So um, the disclavier itself has a feature called remote lesson uh, that is largely limited to um, institutions. So if you have a great faculty member at your school and they have uh, some niche expertise that other people are enthusiastic about, uh, about sharing, um, you can sort of beam that teacher, one piano to the other piano. I actually just now helped facilitate uh, a lesson from uh, Frederick Chu, who is a wonderful Yamaha artist and on the faculty of the Hart School of Music and, um, and other positions as well, I'll, I'll mention. And um, he was invited to teach a class to some students in Moscow. And so we set up a disclavier at the Hart School of Music where they, they have that piano there all the time. And the students in Moscow uh, were able to come to a Yamaha facility there. So, uh, so Frederick Chu has a wonderful way of demonstrating uh, how to create this magical sound in uh, especially the music in the style of Chopin with combining certain subtle movements of pedals and ways to uh, address the keys with velocity. So that's, you know, the speed of playing a key up and down and uh, all of that very, very intricate information just jumped right over those thousands of miles into the piano uh, in Moscow wow. and students where you could see them on the, on the screen, you right. know, they were 
just their jaws were dropped. And these are not students who these are not students who are new to piano repertoire. Right. But obviously his approach to this particular topic was so new and refreshing. Uh, so that was a really magical thing to watch uh, just very, very recently. Um, years ago, I had a more practical application um, with Ina Felix, uh, who is on the faculty of UCLA, so University of California right. in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was invited to join that faculty as a very young artist. And um, that's not something that you ever turn down if you're in this world of, I mean, faculty <laughs> jobs in piano are so hard to come by. But she had this existing set of responsibilities in New York City. And on top of that, she had a new baby. Wow. And so it was going to be really complicated for her to travel back and forth to take advantage of her new job at UCLA while not letting everything slide in New York and also while still having a new baby. Right. And uh, so she did manage to do quite a lot of travel and she um, was very much welcomed on that faculty and she's doing such a wonderful job there still. Um, but for that early transition, we were able to help her alleviate some of the uh, stress of travel by letting her teach some of her lessons from New York City to LA. So she taught students from Yamaha Artist Services in New York City um, and her students, and it was really funny because it was in the winter and her students were always wearing shorts and everybody was all bundled up in New York. <laughs> sometimes it's the distance, sometimes it's the time zone, sometimes it's just convenience of life. Sometimes a teacher is sick, sometimes a student is sick. And uh, just being able to use the distance learning tools, either at the Disclavier or uh, Clavinova or Silent Piano, uh, can also accommodate distance learning tools if you right. apply uh, software, but the the Disclavier actually has a built-in feature. That's awesome. That's so amazing. I tell you. So, real quick, finishing up here, um, where do you see the future of piano technology going? Where do where's the future from today? Do you know? Do you have any clue? Or <laughs> Are... I have my eye on things. I tell you, I always have my eye on things. Um, Yamaha is always looking into the future. I can tell you that. Yeah. And Yamaha has done a lot of research and a lot of um, prototyping in the area of artificial intelligence. That's still very, very new in uh, the sophisticated language of music. Art artificial music making still feels a little artificial, right? Honestly, you can tell when a robot's playing music right. instead of when a human is playing music. But uh, the research is there. It's getting closer and closer. I am also really, really fascinated by how much um, multimedia b is becoming part of our art. So you think of classical piano as this sort of stodgy, snobby world of older people right. sometimes, and it's not uh, always used in the same breath as innovative or modern. Right. Uh, but that's just not true at all. There is so much to be done. Um, because of the complexity of classical music, uh, you can put together just unbelievably eye-popping multimedia displays oh. where the MIDI from the piano, so from the signals from an acoustic performance, are actually creating their own art, so being expressed as visual graphics. Wow. 
Um, And that's not even that's not even hard to do. There's an iPad app called Visual Performer that just immediately turns your performance at the keyboard into a multimedia display. Right. Um, But then there are artists like Dan Tepfer, who are also computer programmers, in addition to being great pianists. And he's a classical pianist and a jazz pianist and, and, you know, every possible brilliant he could be. And um, he's writing algorithms that interpret his playing and then feed it back to the piano. So it's like he's having a duet with his future self. Oh, wow. (laughs) It's really, really brilliant stuff. And in the middle of that, he has, you know, fractal art. And it's just (laughs) unbelievable, mind-blowing, mind-blowing things. Um, Then also, I uh, am aware of pianists who have very severe limits, pianists who have had strokes. I've worked with two great, great pianists who have had strokes or other conditions that limited one hand or the other, and they're able to continue playing the piano because they record one part and play along with their own selves at the Disclavier. So the accommodations for people who have disabilities uh, that is a future way of just allowing so many more people to be expressive at the piano. Uh, you might have seen a video. Uh, there was a really great, I think, YouTube video of the pian- of the of the singer Renee Fleming controlling a disclavier with brain waves. So that's research. Yeah. You know, someone who has complete uh, loss of mobility can still control a piano through their brainwaves. So there's just so much exciting research in the area of accessibility, in the area of um, multimedia, and then, you know, distance learning. Um, I'm just waiting for you know, holograms to be something that I can do myself. <laughs> <laughs> so a hologram dancing on top of the piano while you're playing. Oh, yeah. I will. So I do have to mention one multimedia artist before we close that is really, really exciting. I don't, she hasn't done a lot of work on the Disclavier recently, but this just goes to show how long people have been, you know, experimenting right. with the Disclavier as a multimedia instrument. The artist's name is Xiao Xiao, X-I-A-O, X-I-A-O. But she got hold of a Disclavier during the time she was at MIT right. and created something called Mirror Fugue, where great pianists that she convinced to come and record for her had their images, the actual images of their hands projected onto the keys. And one of the really special uh, times that happened was um, she recorded the New Orleans pianist, Ellen Toussaint. And no one was expecting that it would be one of the last years of his life. And so now we can go back and and see that magical performance, you know, when he sort of unexpectedly passed away. Um, So it's a little... It's a little bit, um, you know, dark to think about, you know, preserving dead pianists. <laughs> That's <laughs> really not something that I really try to emphasize about the Disclavier, but it is really uh, a wonderful way to preserve moments in history, whether it's your child's piano recital or a great pianist that might have visited your house or a great pianist that was at a school or a graduate degree recital. Wow, that's incredible. I tell you, the sky's the limit in just everything we can see there. Uh, By the way, folks, I'm going to go ahead out and uh, we're going to look for all of these things that uh, Shanna has mentioned in here. We're going to put them in the show notes. So if you didn't look, look through the show notes, you'll see links to these videos. We'll embed them on the page as well. So check those out. Well, one last thing here. You know, they say, there's a saying, you don't know what you don't know. 
And I feel like that today <laughs> with you. It's just been amazing listening to everything that you talk about and uh, that you're sharing, that we know that there's so much technology and everything they're doing. But what haven't I asked you today that I should have asked or something that you'd like to share with your audience, you know? Um, so it, like I said earlier, it is just an amazing time to be right here at the junction of music and technology and teaching. The truth is you don't have to be anything like a techie person to enjoy technology at the disc Levier or any other uh, technology equipped instrument um, in 2019. Right. We're all used to using iPads. The technology has receded into the background. It's not the goal anymore. It's just another tool. Um, so if you're doing something as complex and sophisticated as playing the piano, and and if you are, you know, congratulations, because you're keeping your brain going for the rest of your life. Right. Um, adding just a little technology to the mix to make it more engaging and um, more convenient is really, really not a big hurdle to cross. We can connect iPad games that make piano playing feel like uh, feel like a game. Right. You can connect an iPad and have your whole music library uh, turn the pages for you from right inside your disc levier, uh, or any other keyboard. You can record performances um, of special people in your life and have them, you know, archived forever. Um, so you shouldn't feel intimidated, and uh, it's great to have. Um, people like Miller Music on hand mm -hmm. to uh, know their way around and can give every everybody a gentle introduction into what sounds like, you know, a lot of complicated uh, technology, but it's really, really not. There is so much to offer now, and it can be as hard or as easy as you need it to be. Wow. All right. Well, how can people find you? I know I've, you have a website, you're you write blog posts, you write a lot of different things. How can people find you online? How can, if anybody would ever want to get a hold of you, how can people find you? Right. So I uh, have my own website, which is pianotopia.net. And I also help coordinate a website for Yamaha that's called the Yamaha Den. Okay. So it's the Yamaha Disclavier Education Network is the Den. Right. Um, and I uh, try and keep rotating content up there that is just kind of the latest exciting things to do with Disclavier, especially in ways that education might use. All right. Well, thank you so much, Shanna. It's been a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. To our listeners, don't forget that you can find a transcript with this entire podcast, along with show notes and links to all the content that we mentioned, the videos and everything else that we talked throughout right here on the website. Also, don't forget to look us up on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And subscribe to the podcast. Leave a rating and a review if you could. And I'm your host, Jason Skipper. We'll see you next time. <laughs>